This is Brian Finkelmeyer, and welcome to the V Auto Podcast, where we talk with the leading car dealers and industry thought leaders. Today is a really special treat. We have with us Mike Marooney, one of the original co-founders of AutoNation, and truly one of the luminaries of our industry. Mike, thanks so much for joining the show today. Brian, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, let's jump right in. I know you have spent a long, long time working in the business, and one of the interesting things I wanted to get your perspective on is that many of these automotive consolidators across the industry identify best practices and deploy those best practices across their network of dealers. But one of the challenges is allowing these stores and these car guys that run these stores to flourish with their entrepreneurial spirit. How do you find balance between deploying common best practices while still allowing your people to be their entrepreneurial selves? Brian, the way we think about it is we think about it and we have a concept that I've used all through my career and it's called the freedom frame and I'm using it today in our stores. So what the freedom frame does is it says we believe in basic principles of how we want to run the business, whether they're asset management guidelines or whether they're customer-facing processes or their HR policy. And we agree with our operators on those, and we put those in the frame, if you think about a picture frame. Inside the frame, the job of the in-store operator is to put their own personality in it, make it a fun place to work, make it a place where guests come first and that associates are anxious to serve guests in what we call a culture of caring. So there's freedom inside the frame, but the frame itself are the operating principles and the best practices. And then if the operator wants to take some risk and go outside the frame, whether it's an inventory purchase or a change of policy, they've got to call and discuss it with me or the leader of the business. And we found that that works very effectively. People don't feel like you're strangling them and allows them to be creative and use their entrepreneurial spirit. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, as I listen to you talk about that, Mike, one of the big challenges across our industry is finding and attracting, retaining good quality people. Do you feel that that process that you described of having that frame has helped you actually attract the right people? I think it has, because it clearly states we are not going to lock you out of being yourself, we're going to help you be a structured version of yourself. And that's kind of the way we word it is we just want to put some structure in the business as I work remotely from the stores. I'm in the stores every month, but I'm not in the stores every day. But I want to know how the stores are going to be operated. And it allows me to feel that I've got some level of control of what we're going to do. But more importantly, it lets the operator know what they can do, and there is plenty of room for their creativity. One thing that I find really interesting, Mike, is we're sort of entering almost a new phase of the car business is for such a long time, people were arguably one of the big competitive differentiators. The best people tended to, to win. But what we're seeing with players like Carvana and other players that are coming into the market where they're really removing people from the process, and there's more and more consumers are moving towards that digital retailing experience with less less friction, quite frankly, from humans. So I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Well, you know, Brian, that I serve as the lead director of Carvana. So when I think about Carvana, I think about a very different business model. An automotive retail traditional model is high variable expense 
and low fixed cost. The Carvana model is more of upfront cost, and that's building the infrastructure with technology, but it still very much is reliant on passionate teammates following the best practice processes and finding ways to serve customers. So it's different in some ways, but it doesn't take the human element out. You know, Mike, I just read today that Tesla is actually now going towards closing stores across the country. You know, I'm sure you've seen many of these in malls near you where these shiny Tesla retail outlets, they always seem like they're attracting people. That sounds like they're going to begin closing those. And it sounds like Tesla's moving more towards direct consumer sales model. Have you got any thoughts on that? You know, the Tesla model is a very interesting model. I give Elon a lot of credit for building an outstanding product. Certainly his style and his behavior doesn't fit well in a public company at this point in time. I don't know all of the reasons why he's closing his brick and mortar, but I never felt that the storefront in his model added tons of value. The concern in his model has always been the service side of the business and what do guests do when they have mechanical breakdowns or warranty work. And that's the missing piece in the model. Whether he sells it online or in showrooms probably isn't as material as the ability to service it. Yeah, it is fascinating looking at all these different players that have entered the business here over the last five years or so that are trying different formats. But coming back to the traditional way that we've been selling cars here for a long, long time in the United States, one of the big challenges I see facing car dealers is NADA reported in 2018 I think for the first time where expenses now have exceeded gross at the average American dealer. It was 100.2% last year, expenses a percentage of gross. And it sort of begs the question, I mean, is this sustainable? So I think the issue is the absence of gross. There is tremendous pressure on new and used vehicle margins, and it's really impacted the gross. And what now happens is a lot of the money, depending on how it's mapped in your accounting process, goes below the line. So although the expense may be more than the gross above the line, there's tremendous amounts of money below the line. They can take the form of PACs, which avoid compensation. They can take the form of manufacturers' incentive monies, reimbursement for facility actions, etc. And there's still gross left, but it's the way it's mapped. If you mapped that gross back into the variable gross, that income back in the variable gross, it would be a little bit different story, but there's tremendous pressure. And the biggest problem is, is our people on the variable side of the business, in many cases, are making less than what they've made in the past and are working just as hard or harder with a very demanding guest. There is a bit of a collision course, and there's certainly a reliance on OEM monies, which creates some anxiety among retailers. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've talked to some dealer friends of mine that have had pretty dramatic swings from 2018 to 2017 in their bottom line profitability. And they basically have told me that interest rates played a part of that, but also just the changing landscape of their OEM factory program. And so it is troubling to think that so much of your financial success is somewhat reliant upon how generous the OEM bonus program is for the month. The collision course. 
Well, Mike, I had really such a great day there at the Automotive News Retail Forum in San Francisco this year, and I got the chance to listen to you speak about your take on the auto industry. And one of the key themes you talked a little bit about was the importance of being brilliant at the basics, which I thought was just a great, great way of saying it. One of the points that you made there was the importance of using data in our decision-making process. And one thing that strikes me as peculiar about our industry is I can't think of another industry that has $150 billion dollars of assets across our industry tied up in new vehicle inventories where the vast majority of those decisions still tend to be made with a combination of gut feel and recent sales history. So I was curious if you had any thoughts around how your stores or how you've maybe seen successful operators begin to use more data towards driving more efficient inventory decisions because it is a sizable amount of money that is being tied up there. I think that there's a number of ways that data is used and, you know, V-Auto and Dale Pollock's invention is one of the great treasures in the automotive industry and every leader in our company uses it every single day to make better decisions on what they purchase, how they price, what are core vehicles in our in their inventory, what turns and what doesn't turn. I think if you only do a seat of the pants, you are going to end up with a lot of frozen assets, which are, in effect, inventory that doesn't turn. Especially in an increasing rate environment, that's critical. Uh, the other place that data is so important is in your marketing decisions, and it's not just digital decisions. You better be able to measure almost everything you do in marketing. Now, TV, especially, and radio are very hard to measure, but every other format, whether it's direct mail, print, or digital, is measurable. And if retailers learn how to manage that data and really take the time to slice the data and make it effective and make it simple enough to learn, it's incredibly efficient. In our four-store group in Colorado Springs, we have an analyst that full-time finds ways to take data and put it in usable form so that our management team can use that as a positive force in directing the business and understanding how to be more efficient at a time that margins are under tremendous pressure and sales are under pressure and the market is getting a little bit softer. So the data has never been more important. You know, I think one of the key things you said there, Mike, was the importance of usable data. I mean, I think so many car dealers get overwhelmed with so many dashboards and so many data points. Their heads are spinning and it's really that key understanding of those key data points that are going to help make you, as you say, more efficient. And I think that sort of really ties into the next topic I wanted to get your perspective on was when we think about being more efficient in the advertising space, clearly digital is playing a bigger and bigger role in every dealer's ad budgets. As you look out across the landscape, and you know, at NADA, there must have been 2,000 different vendors selling their magic bullet. Is there anything that sticks out to you, you know, in the digital advertising landscape that car dealers should really be paying close attention to? Well, I think the most important thing is not out there yet, but it's in development by Cox and others, and that's an attribution model. An attribution model simply says, I need to understand what drove that guest in the door and how much I spent to get that guest in the door and where I ought to apply my dollars in the future. So attribution model says this one came off of Auto Trader, this one came off of KBB, this one came off of Edmonds, this one came off of the direct mail piece I just dropped in this zip code. Being able to attribute that sale to that source 
allows you to be much more efficient. And, you know, the old pieces that only 50% of your advertising works, I just don't know which 50% it is, that's not acceptable anymore. We can't afford to waste 50% of our ad spend. So I think as those tools become identified and utilized and rolled out to dealers, I think they'll be a major advantage. But they've got to be agnostic. They can't drive decisions back to a certain vendor. And they've got to work. The challenge with them is is that consumers are going to many sources to get their information. So they may go to the dealer website. They may go to Auto Trader. They may go to TrueCar. There's so many places they go, so it's not easy to do. But I think we've got to get better at it, and I know there's people working on that very issue. Yeah, and as you say, Mike, you know, especially on the new car side, certainly the commoditization challenge that we're up against, it really is the low-cost producer, the dealers that are most efficient on the backside of those controllables of inventory management and getting the most bang for their buck on their marketing, as well as their people, that strike me as has the best chance of succeeding as we move forward. Yeah, and I, I used the word earlier, Brian, of structure, and to some people, structure feels like handcuffs or bureaucracy. To me, a structure means an organized way of going about solving problems. One of the fun parts about auto retail is there's challenges every day, there's problems, but you've got to have a basic philosophy of how you're going to attack it. You've got to have data sources that you trust, and then you've got to teach your whole management team how to use that data to make better decisions so that they can compete in a very challenging environment, an environment that frankly could be more difficult tomorrow than it is today. So one of your longtime friends, Mr. Mike Jackson, who I've been in the news here recently, it's well-deserved retirement. I just read that he believes that 2020 may very well be the tipping point on electric vehicles. And obviously that's going to have some big implications on retailers as well. I guess two questions, one of which is, do you agree with Mike that 2020 is the year that things really begin to sway towards EVs? That's the first question. Then the second question is, what are some of your thoughts about the implications that electric cars will have on operations? First of all, Mike's a brilliant leader, a great thinker. He's in the Automotive Hall of Fame. He's won a gazillion Automotive News All-Star Awards. He's decorated as any retailer, so I have tremendous respect for him. I'm not personally sure that 2020 is the tipping point. I mean, today, pure electric is one, one and a half percent of the business. To my opinion, that probably within five years, it might be five percent of the business. Until the charging infrastructure is readily accessible by a vast majority of the people and battery life and range is extended dramatically, I don't see electric vehicles being a huge driver in the U.S. Now, in China and in Europe, it's going to be different where you've got government mandates and probably a bigger commitment to that infrastructure. You know, I think electric cars are interesting. I think they're really fun to drive. The driving dynamics, the acceleration are incredible. But I don't think that people can deal with the range anxiety yet. So is that solved I'm sure it'll accelerate, but when you look at the units in operation, they're internal combustion engines for the most part. So I think it's 20-plus years before it has a significant impact in the business. The ultimate impact could be pressure on the service business. There's less parts that could be breaking down. There's less service frequency. There's all kinds of issues, but I think it's way too early to focus on that. I think we should watch the market 
certainly our dealerships have to be ready to repair those vehicles and to deal with battery disposals and other issues, but I don't think it's going to take over the market in the near term. I would say that I'm certainly in your camp on that as well, that uh, you know, the EVs have been around now for about 10 years, and it still represents 1% to 2% of the market sales, as you say, and if you really peel back the onion, Tesla's the vast majority of that. So to be curious to watch these other manufacturers as they roll out more and more EVs in their lineups. Well, Mike, we're about out of time, but I did want to talk with you about one last thing that I was interested to hear you talk about is not only do you serve as a leader in our industry, but certainly I know you do a lot of leadership work with the Cleveland Clinic. And I know you and your father are working on some things. I was just curious if you'd talk a little bit about some of the efforts that you are working on there with the Cleveland Clinic. Brian, I believe that it's absolutely critical that people give back to the communities that they serve. I think it's an essential role of being in business. Our family has a passion for the Cleveland Clinic and the work that it does. It provides world-class health care. I've served on their board of trustees. I was recently elected to be on their board of directors, and I'm chairing the Cleveland Clinic Florida, which is a fast growth area of the clinic. Our focus is bringing world-class health care to our community and understanding that healthcare is one of the largest components of the GNP. It's a major pressure on families, both in affordability and accessibility, and we've chosen that as an important part of our life. We named the Cancer Center the Maroney Cancer Center at the Cleveland Clinic Florida and believe that uh, that was a great investment in our community and a great way to say thank you to people in our community. Mike, that is a great story, and and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And we're certainly lucky to have you on this podcast today, one of our very first ones we've ever taped. And I certainly hope you'll come back and talk to us again in the future. Brian, it's an honor to be with you, and thanks for including me on the podcast today. Thanks again. And folks, be sure to keep your eye out. We'll be posting more podcasts here in the coming weeks. So keep an eye out, and thank you for tuning in.